you're listening to In The System, presented by Puck Preps. Each episode will bring you extensive coverage of the NHL's top prospects and exclusive interviews with the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of In The System. I'm your host, Rain Hernandez, and alongside with me, as always, is Patrick Talent and Kyle Watson. So before we start off, boys, how are we doing today after uh, dropping that first episode? Fantastic. I love I love the feedback, building a following, and uh, the people I know that have listened to it have enjoyed it. So excited to get number two going here. Yeah, I'm really excited with, you know, the thing that we have here. I'm, you know, really excited for the future because I really think that we have a cool thing, good thing going here. And, you know, the second episode is, you know, big, big reason for that is we have Scott Wheeler coming on later, later on in the show. But before we get to that, we'd like to talk about, you know, some things going on in the junior hockey realm and everything in the NHL draft wise as the world juniors is right around the corner. And we are excited to do some coverage for you guys for that. And, you know, the podcast episodes for the next few ones are going to be, you know, world junior related. So, uh, we might as well talk about, you know, the things that have happened over the past 48 hours. And that was the announcement of most of the rosters and specifically Canada and the U S and, you know, uh, Canada specifically, you know, the cuts and, you know, how stacked this team is. It, it looks incredible on paper. So uh, I just wanted to know with you guys, what are your thoughts on uh, team Canada's roster? Pretty scary. We were talking before the episode, if it can give the 09, even the 15, uh, a run for its money. And I think it can, you have 20 first rounders on this entire roster, which is just absurd. The amount of talent that Canada is able to pump out. I know there are people disagreeing with the cuts and I'm sure we'll get to that in a second, but cuts aside, this is, this is a, a, a very scary roster. And I think, I think uh, they're the favorite for gold for me at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we're the favorites going in every year, but I think this year it's uh, it's it's a very realistic uh, outcome that this team wins. Uh, anytime you're leaving wonderful talents such as Sam Poulin off the team, you know you got a good team. I think um, I think Quinton Byfield is kind of an X factor for Canada because you know he was pretty absent in the last tournament. He hasn't been playing any hockey. He didn't look great at camp, but I still wouldn't be surprised if he's the dominant two C beside behind Kirby Dak on the, on Team Canada. Yeah, so I think the first thing that we can really dive into is are some of the players that, you know, didn't make the team. And, uh, you know, the first player that comes to mind, obviously, for Kyle, uh, very close to you as a Pittsburgh Penguins prospect, per- perhaps the last Pittsburgh pros- uh, prospect remaining is uh, Sam Poulin. And uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, him not making the team? Yeah, uh, I could always see it happen. I, I didn't think he was going to have a big role on the team. Uh, I guess the main thing is I think he's more capable of playing uh, a checking role or a fourth line role or a limited usage role um, than some of the guys Canada kept. So I'm, I'm disappointed, but I, I was already always ready for the post prospect that uh, we wouldn't have any prospects in this tournament. But uh, I'm hoping Joel Blomquist on, on Finland has a good tournament. <laughs> he's, he's sort of the last man standing, I guess, for you, Kyle, because... You know, Jim Rutherford hasn't done a very good job in terms of uh, keeping his prospects. It's all about win now. So, I mean, we'll see, right? <laughs> yeah, I think they'll hold on to Poulin, though. I think he's a cut above all the kids we've traded. But um, it's really disappointing not to get to see him have, have a run at this tournament. A shock to people was seeing Seth Jarvis cut. And it was a shock to me as well, on top of Poulin being cut. Um <laughs> I don't know, nearly 100 points in the WHL this past season, but I think they're more confident going in with the depth they have on the right wing with 
with Dak and Tomasino and Krabs going with those guys. So I don't really think, um, I guess there was room for him and, and he's more, he's, he's a, he's a scorer, right. And I may be in the bottom six, they wanted someone who can be a bit more of a checker and that's not really such Jarvis's game. So um, aside from that, I think the big one that stood out to me was Ryan O'Rourke. That was a cut that I think yeah, me too. we can sort of, while we don't agree with it necessarily understand the Poulet and Jarvis cut, Ryan O'Rourke, you're going with three lefties. Now you have Byram, you have Gooley, you have Harley. And then um, everyone else is a righty on defenseman. So you're really banking a lot on Gooley and Byram to take a lot of those minutes. And we know Team Canada likes to take that defensive approach. So why not take, who in my mind is one of the best defensive defensemen who just got drafted in Ryan O'Rourke, who can also skate, who also has an underrated offensive uh, offensive upside uh, to his game. I was a little shook by that. And, you know, I thought I thought I would have saw someone like Spence cut in favor of O'Rourke because, um I don't know. I think it's sort of, I, I know those righties can play on the offside, but I feel like it might've been a bit more insurance to to add another lefty at least, but that's just me. Yeah. I agree with you on the, on the Ryan O'Rourke talk. I, I was pretty surprised to see him not make the team. I was really disappointed in that. I thought he could have been, you know, the perfect defenseman uh, for Canada just because you can put him in any situation, uh, whether it's on the power play, even though he's probably not, he wasn't going to be on there in the first place, but you know, he could play a shutdown role and, you know, he plays big minutes on Sue and, you know, I sort of like that three left-handed defenseman, three right-handed defenseman type thing, but sort of works. So, but a player for me that like, you know, I think of that was pretty like an awkward cut, I guess, is uh, Graham Clark, who, you know, obviously plays for Andre and with the 67. So you can imagine the conversation that that could have gone down. So I was uh, obviously, I didn't see Graham Clark making the team, but obviously very tough for uh, coach Andre to make that decision. But in terms of Canada's roster, you know, I'm really excited. Alex Newhook is, you know, one of my favorite prospects in general. So I'm really glad to see him on the team this year as with Dylan Holloway as well. But I wanted to ask you guys, like Kirby doc is the undisputed uh, choice for captaincy, correct? Yeah. I can't see Canada going with anyone with anyone else. Yeah. Considering how good he is. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, he's the only NHL player there. And uh, usually that's what happens. We saw it with the Nuge in, in 2013 when he dropped down. And, you know, uh, we saw it a few years ago with uh, Victor Mete when he came down, he got the A. Or was it the C? I don't remember. But he, he was a big part of that. But I'm really excited for this team. Uh, like, this team is so stacked. Like, it's crazy. You know, Byfield on the second line. And then you have Holloway, Newhook, and Peltier as a line. It's it's crazy, and I think I think they're going to be a very good team. But you know, moving on to you know south of the border, it was uh, Team USA who had a very interesting uh, you know roster announcement with uh, two big names that were uh, left off the team due to COVID nineteen reasons, as Johnny Beecher and Thomas Bordalo were uh, did not make the team. So uh, you know the main question I think we have with team USA is do they have enough to compete with Canada at this year's tournament? I think looking at the, at the top six, I, w- I would say it's enough and on defense uh, kind of, uh, I think, I think uh, Thurn Sanderson should get most of the minutes, but I don't know. Their deployment's been questionable in the past. And while it is still, somewhat a star-studded roster these cuts are kind of strange not so much John Beecher because he wasn't really having the best season and he wasn't he's not the most dynamic offensive player but um the reason Bordalo was cut was because they were both exposed to a roommate who had COVID and I think that's yeah. what really hurts them is 
you and I are, all of us are really high on Bordalo. Um, I know a lot of people thought he was a first round pick. Um, so seeing that really hurts, but I think it's enough. And, and I think there's still a pretty significant chance that Canada us is the gold medal final. So, um, it hurts, but I'm still confident in, in these players and having people like uh, Caulfield and Turcotte and Zegers return. I think that's a huge bonus for them. It's unfortunate that things panned out this way where teams are losing players due to the pandemic. Um, but I think this is a tournament where you really don't, like you can run three lines in this tournament. We saw it Canada last year. Uh, although I guess Akil Thomas ended up being the first that yeah. scored the game winning goal. But I think uh, the key difference that's, that's going to separate the Canadians from the States and also Russia is the goaltending. Like uh, if you get enough out of Caulfield, Zgrass, Turcotte, those guys, and then you get the performance that Spencer Knight and on Russia's side, Askarov are capable of, then, you know, I think that's enough to beat Canada, even though uh, they're incredibly stacked. Yeah. I think we see it. We see it all the time uh, with the 2013 team that we saw Canada had everyone. They were stacked because, you know, they had the lockout and, Canada had Nugent Hopkins, Mark Shifley, Ryan Strom, and then McKinnon on their fourth line. That's how you think how good they were. But yet they didn't win the tournament because all you need in a really big tournament is a really good goaltender. And then they ran into John Gibson, who probably had one of the greatest world junior performances I've ever seen. And he was outstanding. So all you really need is a goalie. And for the U.S. and Russia, they, they have that in Eskarov and Spencer Knight. So it will be very interesting to see how this thing plays out, especially in a bubble format. We've, we've obviously got accustomed to that because of the NHL playoffs. And we sort of touch on that a little bit with uh, Scott Wheeler. So we'll take you that interview right now. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing well, keeping busy. There's a lot going on right now with the world juniors looming around the corner and, and the holidays and all of that. So just getting prepared to, to head out to Edmonton in a couple of weeks and, and looking forward to getting back in a building to watch some live hockey again. Ooh, uh, when do you leave for uh, the bubble? I leave on Christmas Eve. So the, the games are starting this year on, on Christmas Day, as I'm sure you guys know, instead of on Boxing Day, they're starting a day early to, to cram their schedule in because they're only operating out of one location. So uh, I fly out late on Christmas Eve and, and I'll spend my, my Christmas Day in the press box, I expect. I'm really jealous that you get to you know, go to the bubble. But uh, before we get started into you know, talking about your rankings and you know, your viewpoints on prospects, uh, we wanted to get sort of some background on uh, how you got into scouting and, you know, how you got into uh, ultimately writing for The Athletic. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long-ish journey. Uh, I, I knew that I sort of wanted to take on this kind of a beat. And by this kind of a beat, I mean sort of covering the, the prospect side of the sport pretty early on. I went to Carleton Journalism School for, for the sort of traditional journalism route. And one of the benefits of being in Ottawa uh, at Carleton is that you've got Gatineau 10 minutes away and you've got the 67s 10 minutes away. So you kind of had access instead of just to one league, you had access to both leagues. So that allowed me to see a couple hundred draft eligible players who were playing on an annual basis uh, and really gave me a wide scope to dig in in terms of just getting in the rink and putting in the hours. And then uh, I began working in the early days with McKean's hockey and, and future considerations at the time. And, and just sort of cutting my teeth in that way, filing my reports, being a member of this sort of Eastern Canada team on the scouting side. And then in, in terms of the journalism side, I, I began freelancing, began sort of writing wherever I could in the early days that actually meant writing at pension plan puppets, the SB nation blog that covers the Leafs. 
did some sort of reporting for them, uh, ended up sort of managing that site and, and sort of running the operations on that side of things. And then from there, it was just trying to use that experience with both McKean's and future considerations and with PPP to sort of parlay it into the next opportunity and then the, the next opportunity. So was lucky enough to do some, some sort of internships, if you will, at, at the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Sun and the Toronto Star and just kind of use those experiences to, to carve out a niche tried to write about hockey when I was in those roles whenever I could, uh, just pitching at sports editors and that kind of a thing, freelancing for outlets like the Hockey News, and et cetera, et cetera. So it was just kind of a, a sort of slow process. In the early days, I, I, I was kind of in the same place where I was back then, where I was splitting my time. So in the early days at The Athletic, I was doing the draft stuff. I was trying to do the national draft coverage, do the prospect stuff, do the scouting stuff, do the sort of reporting on, on these kids. But I was also covering the Leafs and the Marlies early on in the, at the athletic because they wanted a third person on the Leafs beat with, with Jonas and, and with Myrtle. So I was for a long time doing kind of 10, 12 road games a year for the Leafs beat while also trying to travel out to Boston college and travel out to, to the world juniors and do that kind of a thing uh, on the prospect side. So the, it really only truly came together in terms of full on prospect coverage. This is my thing in the last two years, I've been at the athletic for about three and a half years. And the last two years have been fully dedicated to just covering prospects, to getting to all of the prospect tournaments, to getting to all of the major international events, the Memorial cup, et cetera. So uh, that part of the job is, is, is actually kind of newer in terms of my, my seven or eight years of doing this. Uh, but it's been, it's been a joy. The athletics, an incredible place to work. It's been a ton of fun to sort of watch the company grow to what it is now. And I'm just super, super lucky at this point to be doing the job that I'd always kind of envisioned for myself back when I was in journalism school. This, this was kind of the end game for me. I, I enjoyed the Leafs coverage, but the prospect side of, of my work was always my real passion. So just looking at you've, you've written all over the place, Toronto star. I'm looking at your bio now, Globe and mail, Toronto sun, national post, like all over. You mentioned you had always wanted to do scouting, but I know there are plenty of people in the media who haven't written for this many places. Just what was it like to write for so many different outlets? What was that like for you? It was different for sure. I mean, you're bouncing around. You've constantly got a new editor. You've constantly got sort of a new boss and a new voice, and you're trying to prove yourself to a new set of people. And it, it is a challenge, but I think once you sort of get one under your belt, uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier. The biggest challenge is just the different kinds of coverage I did at all of those places. When I, for example, was at the Toronto Sun, I covered the Blue Jays and the Raptors for a summer. That was sort of my four-month internship, and the Leafs weren't playing. So it was the Raptors' playoff run, which I had had to basically just get thrown into. I'd never covered basketball as a reporter, let alone for a national newspaper. And then there was the Blue Jays' season that was happening. So I think those experience helped me in a kind of big way by the same token, my, my job, when I was at the Toronto star, I did a four month internship at the Toronto star. I was in the news department. I wasn't even at that point. I had established a following on Twitter. I'd, I'd established myself kind of in the sports media landscape a little bit, but I decided to leave the athletic, which had brought me on about six months earlier to pursue that opportunity. And it was actually 
James Myrtle, who, who obviously you guys I'm sure are familiar with, and Sean Fitzgerald, who's now a reporter for us, but back then was kind of a, the managing editor. And the two of them encouraged me to take this, the star internship. It's It was something that they felt would make me a better reporter. It would sort of allow me to cut my teeth in different ways. So at the star, I wasn't even covering sports. It was just daily news. It was crime. It was housing. It was everything. It was sort of business development, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that part of it is, has been a bit of a mixed bag. I've, I've kind of done a bunch of different things early in my career. And my big recommendation to, to other young journalists, whenever they reach out for coffee or, or whatever, in pre-COVID times, at least, has always just been to, to sort of take, what, take whatever comes next. Don't feel like you have to be a sports guy. The next opportunity will make you a better reporter. And then someday you can always sort of work your way back into sports. So that was just kind of the approach I took. It was, let's get as much work and as much experience under my belt as I can. And then hopefully at the end of it, I'm a better reporter. And on the hockey side, hopefully I'm a, a better talent evaluator in terms of identifying what, where these kids are at and what's coming next for them. So, uh, it, it was, it was a weird journey, but I, I've just been super lucky along the way. And now I'm, I'm kind of at my end game and, and kind of where I want to be. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Your story is a, is a really inspirational one for students and young journalists like us. Um, just taking uh, all the opportunities you had available to you, kind of leaving your comfort zone. Uh, that's something that kind of scares me. Like you wrote for the PGA tour, even though you're primarily mm-hmm. a hockey guy, but um, now that you're at your angle at, at such a young age, relative to a lot of guys um, in, in journalism, how does it feel just to be where you want to be so early and, and dedicating your entire work to prospects and being able to go to all the tournaments and not having to worry about the Leafs or anything. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. It's been a, it's been a joy when, when they kind of asked me, okay, we need you to stop splitting your time. It needs to be either all in on the Leafs and the Marlies or all in on the prospects. Cause you're, you're kind of, jumping on two beats here and, and it's it's best for your career it's best for us if, if you're just doing one thing so when when that sort of pitch was made to me by by the management staff at the athletic it was the the easy decision was just kind of let's let's go all in on prospects let's do the analysis side which my colleague Corey Pronman also does extremely well let's add to the work that he does on the analysis side and then let's do some reporting which isn't something that that really Corey does he's not a storyteller he's an evaluator so um um, we, we felt like we struck a really good balance and that me and Corey kind of played off of each other's strengths really well to, to hopefully the goal is to do prospect coverage that you can't find anywhere else. So that was the end game. And I think we're getting there and, and I think we're, we're doing a, a sort of a very thorough job in terms of the prospect space and, and that sort of public coverage. So, um, it's, it's been a ton of fun. I mean, you met, you mentioned it there too. I didn't even mention the PGA tour, but I, when I was at the PGA tour, I was kind of on the media side. So I was kind of on the other side of the script. I was a, a sort of media relations person for the PGA tour for two, for two years. Um, and so that in that you're, you're writing about golf because you write for PGA tour.com. The people who do media for them also write for, for the website, of course. Uh, but you're also sort of handling players and, and sort of seeing the other side of it. And you, you learn to appreciate the job that the people who do PR for, for a giant corporation like the Maple Leafs uh, do. And, and you learn to sort of empathize with them. So it, it's just been a little bit of everything. And eventually you arrive at your destination. And I think if you just keep at it, if you keep grinding that, that it, it, it really is. And I know it's cliche, but it really is possible to sort of reach that end game, even in sports journalism today, where 
we all hear about it from our professors. I'm sure you guys are the same. It's, it's low paying and the jobs are disappearing and newspapers are shrinking and all of that. There can be a lot of negativity, I think, about sports journalism as an industry. But in, in a lot of ways, this is a great time to be in sports journalism. And, and The Athletic is an excellent example of that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been, you know, reading your prospect work for, you know, forever. And, you know, like, like you said, The Athletic has grown a lot into, you know, being the primary place to go get your prospects coverage. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what's, what's the first quality that you sort of look for in a prospect that just, you know, that attracts you to that particular player? Ooh, uh, that's a very good question. I'm not sure whether there's a specific sort of one thing that I try to hone in on. I think the game is changing. I, th I think people romanticize a player's ability to, to do one thing really well. They romanticize the ability to shoot the puck and score, the ability to defend, the ability to be really fast. And I think when we sort of spend so much of our time saying this kid does that one thing way better than everyone else. And he's going to figure it out because of that. I think we can trap ourselves because you need to be able to do a lot more than one thing. Well, to become an NHL player, even if that one thing that you do well is so far beyond your peers. So some good examples of that are, are Zach Sinishin, a kid who is one of the greatest skaters you'll ever see on the ice and just never really made it because he didn't have the tools to, to complement that skating. The McLeod brothers are, are another good example of that. Two kids who are just freakish athletes in terms of their ability to skate, but it's taken that both of them some time, and I think they could both still get there, but it's taken both of them some time to figure it out. Owen Tippett was a kid who could always just shoot the puck harder than everyone else. And I think the problem with kids like that is, is, is they start to sort of drift into sort of requiring themselves to, to do that one thing well. And then suddenly you've got a game that's thin. You've got a game that isn't well-rounded. So I think in today's game, I'm less worried about speed these days. I think that was a trend that, that got a little bit carried away from itself. Once a player's within the offensive zone, a lot of that speed disappears. The game slows down. You need to be able to problem solve. You need to be able to play in traffic. You need to be able to navigate against pressure and not have that sort of panic button that you're hitting when a player's chasing after you and that kind of a thing. So I, I think today it's about more than, than the individual skills. It's about how a player navigates, especially with the puck on his stick. You cannot be an NHLer if you're not comfortable with the puck on your stick. Um, and there are still, there's the odd exception to that. The odd sort of defensive defenseman who is maybe a little choppy in his slot in his stride and sloppy with the puck and he'll turn the puck over. Some of those guys can still make it occasionally, but by and large, you need to be comfortable under pressure. You need to be comfortable in traffic and you need to be able to sort of problem solve when you're out there. So that means your head has to be up. You have to be surveying the ice. There are a lot of kids who still rely a little bit too much on instinct. I think uh, Vasily Podkolzin is a player that comes to mind as a kid who just sees a play and wants to make it. And, against his peers, he's often been talented enough to make it, but I'm not sure it's going to have that same kind of impact at, at the NHL level. So I think increasingly you'll see players like Cole Perfetti, players like Lucas Raymond, players who can sort of make plays with the comp with the puck on their stick, but also just navigate with the puck on their stick and see beyond the play that's immediately in front of them. Just because there's an open stick doesn't mean they have to pass the puck to that player. Right. So um, it, it, it's about the players who are constantly thinking out there. That that's my primary focus today. I would think. When you're looking at a player for the first time, 
do you sort of factor in what you've been told or what you've read about that player? Or do you sort of start as a blank slate, try to ignore that and come to your own sort of conclusion for that player? Yeah, another good question. It's, it's, it can be difficult. You, you hear a lot. I spend a lot of my time sort of talking to scouts, talking to their coaches, talking to their general managers, their agents, and you can hear mixed reviews from people. But if you hear the same thing repeatedly, that can stick in your head, even if maybe it's not there to the degree that those people think it's there. So that is a, it's a major challenge and not just sort of listening to other people and sort of entering a viewing with that in the back of your mind, but entering a viewing with your previous viewing in the, your own previous viewing in the back of your mind. Right. So uh, if I, if I saw a player who was looked terrible uh, in, in one game in October, and then I go back to December in December to watch that player play a second time, because I want an updated viewing or a second viewing before I do a list or that kind of a thing, then suddenly they, you can, you can box yourself in if you're, if you're, if you're expecting a certain result. Right. So it's a it's a tricky process. I, I think you have to be careful with all of those things, um, but you also just have to trust yourself. You have to trust your instinct, and at the end of the day, you have to be sure of yourself, or you're going to make a lot of mistakes in the world of scouting. I think so. Um, you you need to trust what you know you're looking for in a player, what that player provides, and just sort of look for the things that you think will translate to the next level, and and be certain about those things, be confident in those things and don't waver because I think when you start to waver, you start to talk yourself into, to maybe a lesser player being a better player than he actually is. Obviously um, in all of your rankings, you write that despite the fact that you talk with scouts and coaches um, that these at the end of the day are, are still your opinions, but how important is that to your journalism to have those conversations and, and how often do you learn something that you wouldn't otherwise have found out uh, about the player and, and that factors into your scouting? For instance, um, in London in 2011 or 12, there was Michael Hauser uh, and he won like CHL goaltender of the year and all that, but uh, he had club feet. So his long-term projection didn't look so good. So how often do you find little things like that and how important that is to your, uh, your writing? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And it's just about staying on top of those kinds of people in terms of talking to scouts and agents and, and having regular conversations with them and making sure that they know who you are and you know who they are and they can text you or they can call you or I, I'm, I can be comfortable calling that any time, that kind of a thing. And there's there's tons of examples of, of things that I've discovered over the years that have, have severely influenced the way that I had been thinking about a prospect. And sometimes with agents in particular, you obviously have to be careful because they have a vested interest in these kids. But a good example last year, Ty Smolanich. I had no idea even though I'd watched him a ton, um, I, I had no idea that that his hand injury was as serious as it was, and that he only had the use of, of basically one of his fingers in his in his top hand on his stick for for half the season. So, Smolanich was a kid who was a top prospect of mine in, in in terms of my early rankings, and then I'd soured on him a little bit, and he became hard to evaluate because that sort of. 2002 age group last year just wasn't a very strong age group for USA hockey. So all of those kids were tough to evaluate because they weren't surrounded with proper talent, but things like that happen all the time. There, there was a, a another kid last year by the name of Evan Veerling who became a, a New York Rangers pick who he, he battled some mental health problems in Flint and, and demanded a trade out of Flint and then sat at home for a month while he awaited that trade. And I think a lot of teams took that as some huge negative. And there's a lot more. I, I had learned through his agent and through others that there was actually a lot more to that story than you might think. And that this wasn't a, a necessarily all about a kid who 
had bad attitude and didn't like being inflamed and wanted to go closer to home and that kind of a thing, which, which can often happen when a player demands a trade in his draft year. So uh, there's all sorts of little stories like that, that I think begin to trickle out over the course of a season that help influence where you're at on a player and, and sort of where the truth is, because there's a lot that gets said about these kids, both publicly and privately. And it's about finding that sort of, that nugget of, of truth that says, okay, this is where I can actually settle on this player. This is where I'm comfortable sticking my neck out on this player. Or maybe you're, you never get comfortable sticking your neck out on a player because you haven't seen him enough or you haven't heard about him enough. And that can create its own challenges. I think with the high school kids in the United States in particular, uh, I can fall prey to that just because I, I don't spend the proper time. I don't think watching those high school kids as I should. So sometimes those kids have, have snuck through the cracks on me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's complicated. You've, you've got to trust your judgment, but you also have to constantly be seeking out as much information about them as you can. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, like, like you said, with the U S high school, I really think it's a very underrated, uh, you know, uh, league, I guess, like, for example, you got shy St. Mary's a terrific team always. And, you know, teams like St. Andrews college, they end up mm-hmm. producing pros as well. So I really think the U.S. high school state is really a good source to find some really good prospects there. I think uh, it should grow in the near future. But uh, I wanted to move on to your actually your 2021 NHL draft rankings and, you know, talk a little bit about that. And, you know, obviously everyone wants to look at number one and number two, and that's Owen Power and Brant Clark. What do you think will be the uh, the main difference that will separate one of these two as to you know grabbing that first overall for the entire year well Brant's got to get back playing that's the bottom line for him he's been working very hard to get over and, and playing in Sweden and he hit the road bump with Hockey Al Spenson because they didn't realize that if you aren't drafted by an NHL club you can't go over there on a loan agreement there, there's been all sorts of complications with Brant getting over there um so it, it's, it's been a, a challenge for Brant. And I think without him playing, it's very hard to update your analysis of him. A lot has changed for him, just like it has for all of these other kids in the last nine months. And he's worked very hard in the gym this summer um, with Tony Greco out in Ottawa and working on the ice with Pat Malloy in Ottawa and working in Toronto, driving to Toronto every couple of weeks to work with Josh Robel. So the, he, he's worked very hard on his game, but Brandt is a kid who is going to have to, over the course of, of whatever his season looks like, really prove himself, I think, to, to, to actually challenge for first overall. He's a kid who looks really different out there. He's lanky. He's kind of awkward. His stride doesn't look like you'd want a first overall pick stride to look like. So there's some clumsiness to who he is as a kid and as a player. And I think that complicates it. And it, and it puts some teams off in, in a way as well. So the talent is there with Brandt. I think on raw skill, he's got a chance to be kind of a really unique, interesting player. Like, like one of those kids who's, who's a Rover and maybe something a little bit different than anything we've ever seen before. So he's a really darn interesting player. He's, he's a fascinating player, regardless of what he becomes in the NHL. I think he's a a really interesting player. And then Owen is, is kind of the, polar opposite right Owen we know that that Owen Power is going to be a very good player we don't know how good he's going to be but there's less risk involved in Owen Power he just looks like an NHLer already so that helps Owen there's a comfort level that teams have with a player like Power where he's big and he can skate and he can do a little bit of everything and I think it's always been it can with it as it often is with those kids is can his offensive game 
be enough to make him the, the sort of Victor Hedman, Chris Pronger that everybody wants him to be? Or is he going to have to settle somewhere a little bit lower than that? Because frankly, it's just very hard to be a Victor Hedman. So uh, it, it's a complicated process with those guys. And then on top of it, I would argue that defensemen at that age are just harder, flat out harder to evaluate than forward. So anytime there's a draft that's as heavy on, on defensemen at the top as this one is, it's just a hard draft to put a finger on. 2012 is an excellent example of that. We all remember Yakupov and Galchenyuk, but that draft was defined by the fact that six defensemen went in the top 10, which almost never happened. So this year's the same, same kind of thing. You could see five or six defensemen go in the top 10. And that's just going to, I think, result in a lot of teams sort of hitting and sort of connecting on a home run with one of those kids or missing badly on those kids because of COVID, because the, the lack of exposure to a lot of the top forward prospects and because defensemen are just really hard to evaluate. Um, I had a Q question for you, and this one was about uh, Zachary, Zachary LaRue, who you, um, in your rankings, you put a quote from a source saying, I don't know why people drool over him. And LaRue has been a really interesting one for me to watch. Uh, the skill is there, obviously, but I noticed he can kind of be a passenger at times. And I want to know how much that sort of work ethic maybe influences your rankings. And from here on out, do you see him climbing or falling? Yeah, LaRue is an interesting one because the public sphere loves him. Uh, people... Uh, a lot of people who do work like I do for different outlets are, are real big fans of him, but that is not necessarily shared by people in the QMJHL or by NHL scouts, at least not in the same way. Everybody recognizes that he's a big, strong, physical, pesky sort of when he is really working at it. He, he's a lot to handle he, off the cycle, off the rush. He's just a heavy kid on the puck with a ton of skill. So that's exciting. That's sort of what gets people excited in terms of NHL upside. He's already got the body and all of that is, is there. But I have heard, I've heard again, one of those things that you hear from people, I've, I've heard real concerns about his attitude, about his demeanor, about sort of uh, what he's like off the ice, that kind of a thing. And you try not, I try not to put too much pressure in that unless it's a something like it was with Tony D'Angelo where racism was, was involved in that kind of a conversation. That's a game changer for me, but things about habits or about how he looks on the ice. I think those things can often be overblown. I think they were overblown with Phil Kessel. I think they're, they were overblown last year with a player like Carter Savoy, who I think is going to be a fabulous player in the NHL and a real sort of dynamic goal scorer. So sometimes we can get carried away with those things, but there are occasionally players where that does enter the conversation. And I think it's at least something that's noteworthy in terms of a projection for Zach Wairuru. If it is, is that something that keeps him more of a, as more of a sort of 15 to 30 guy in the NHL draft rather than a 10 to 15 guy. And, and how much weight are you going to put into, into that? So it's something I've been, I've been considering myself all year. I'm sure I'll continue to consider it, but there's definitely people who feel like he's, he's, uh, I don't want to use bad language, but that he's kind of a dick. So um, we'll see what happens with, with what's next for him. Uh, but the talent is there and, and the NHL game is there and all of that. He's a, he's a really good player. So it, it, it's a tough balance, balancing act to, to sort of navigate and I mean, look no further than what we saw with other players like Ryan Merkley, et cetera, in recent memory. It's, it's always been a, something that's present in most drafts. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Merkley because I was just going to mention him. Um, at the time of draft, you know, these kids are 18, like their personality is not completely developed, but it's it's pretty, pretty set in stone. How much do you think at that point the NHL team and how they develop the player can can eliminate some sort of those issues? Obviously, D'Angelo is all another situation, but with like LaRue or, or Merkley. Yeah, I, again, the things that I've heard about LaRue are not nearly as bad as the things that people used to say about Merkley. So I think they're, they, they're in a little bit of a different conversation in terms of that way. But um, again, I think there's, there's always opportunities for those kids to change. There's always opportunities for growth and maturity. And I think Merkley is an excellent example of that. I was someone who was very high on, on Ryan Merkley throughout his draft year. And I saw him breaking his stick on the post and I heard the stories about him being a jackass in practice to his teammates and just all of that was out there. And, and I still settled on, okay, this kid is too talented to, to not figure it out. And he's too talented. At some point you, you just have to take the chance and you've got to hope that within your culture and within your development program that you can make him better. You've got to hope that he'll grow up. Merkley, for example, was one of the younger players in his draft year. So that that's always a part of the conversation as well in terms of he was he was a young kid he was a, a 17 years old throughout his entire draft year so all of those things i think have to be a part of the conversation and sometimes you settle on okay i don't feel comfortable taking that kid and sometimes you settle on taking that kid and with merkley i settled on you should take him i was the same on matt barzell who infamously sort of fell in the draft because he quote unquote didn't interview well at the combine, which is absolutely ridiculous to me. Um, but it, it's, it's not, it's not an easy balancing act and, and every kid is different and you have to trust that they're again, that they're kids that always has to be in the back of your mind. And that's not to excuse their actions at all. Um, those things need to be taken extremely seriously, especially with what we know about some of the culture problems that are present in junior hockey and even some of the stories that have come out in the last couple of weeks about hazing, et cetera. It's, it's a problem in junior hockey and with hockey culture. So all of those things need to be sorted out in their own way. And it's, it's a, a very difficult conversation and a very difficult sort of balancing act, I think. Yeah. I think uh, this draft class in particular, it's, it's really tough to evaluate prospects just because of the lack of, you know, you know, draft tape and, you know, players playing at the moment uh, you know, the USHL has a really big advantage right now because their season's underway. Well, you know, the OHL is nowhere to be found. So uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you in uh, evaluating these 2021 prospects is, you know, are, are you looking at their minor midget tape or their tape from minor hockey? And do you think, are, are you getting the impression that NHL scouts are also looking at that tape as well? I don't know. It's, it's typically on my radar, those kids, when they're 14, 15, I keep up to date on the top kids of every draft class. And I ask around about some of the big names for the Bantam draft in particular, which is obviously a year earlier in the WHL and all of that's front of mind. I go to the OHL cup when it happens, I've covered the OMHA playoffs in terms of AAA hockey. I did stories on Quinton Byfield when he was 14 and, and watched him play a bunch of games for York Simcoe and all of that. Um, so it, it is something that I'm, I'm cognizant of. I, I probably see, I don't know, six to 10 uh, games a year in terms of that AAA level that I actually spend time watching, whether that's on tape, the tape of, uh, that someone has sent me, or whether it's just going out to the rink and, and watching those kids play locally in the GTHL in and around Toronto and that kind of a thing. Uh, but it, it's not a focus for me. And I don't think it's a major focus 
even today as, as scouting departments expand, I don't, I still don't think it's a major focus for those teams. They wait until these kids are 16, 17 years old, and then they dig in on them. The culture in Europe's maybe a little bit different because those kids are often playing at the U20 or the U18 level in terms of the, the sort of top prospects that are 14, 15, even occasionally 13 year olds playing at the U16 level and that kind of a thing. So when I'm naturally watching kids for the 2020 draft or for the 2021 draft in Europe, I, I often take note of kids who are 15, 16, who are quote unquote younger than they would be in North America entering the league, which maybe even gives those kids in Europe that are playing up levels, a bit of an advantage over the kids that are playing AAA here, because I've seen them a little bit earlier. You see players like Brad Lambert and uh, those kinds of names. Aturatu was, was playing at the U20 level when he was 15 years old, as an example. So um, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but in terms of AAA hockey in North America, I don't watch it a ton, if I'm being honest. Uh, I, 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 and I probably watch it more than most, honestly, in terms of just getting out to do stories on those kids because I like to do the story side rather than actually taking it seriously with their, those evaluations. But I remember falling in love with Evan Vierling, a, a kid I talked about earlier when he was the second-line center to Quinton Byfield on that York Simcoe Express team when I was watching Quinton for that story. So you, you do pick up on things over the years. I remember watching James Hardy, who now plays for the Mississauga Steelheads. He played for the Barry Colts at the time, and I thought he was excellent in their series in the OMHA playoffs against that York Simcoe team at the time. So there are little things like that that you pick up on, but AAA hockey is, is not honestly a, a big part of my job. And I don't think it's a huge part of, of what NHL teams are doing these days either. I wanted to ask a little bit about what you thought about sort of the, the analytics community growing, obviously in hockey and hockey Twitter, but it's been a sort of topic of conversation in, in prospects Twitter. You have the NHL uh, equivalent tool, which, obviously is getting a lot of attention, a very controversial tool. And you have someone like Mitch Brown, for example, who is tracking shot creation efficiency and all, all this like very specific data for NHL prospects. I wanted to know what you think of that. Um, do you stick mostly to tape or do you also take a look at that? And if you're going to put stock into that, how much do you put into that, uh, that sort of data? It's a big piece of the puzzle. And I know people always say piece of the puzzle, but it's a, a huge part of my job, quite frankly. Um, I, I rely on on sort of tracking my own stuff in a small way, at least. Uh, but people like Will Scouch, who do it publicly, and obviously Mitch, who you mentioned, they're great resources. Um, it, it's the, the data side of, of hockey prospects is still very much in its infancy. Uh, we have much, much better data for the European leagues because they track time on ice. Time on ice is always going to be the be all and end all of statistics because you can then measure everything relative to how much a player is playing in terms of per 60 metrics, et cetera, et cetera. So there are websites, Pick 2224 is an excellent public sort of database that's available for anyone who wants to sort of dig in a little bit further than goals, assists, points, shots on goal, face-offs. It takes it a step further in terms of uh, putting together all of the things that we know in, about the NHL in terms of data. So uh, th that's the next frontier is we already have in Liga, in the KHL, in, in Sweden, in, at both the junior and the pro level, we have time on ice data for most of those leagues. And it, it's a huge help for me because then you can start measuring uh, when they have more sort of detailed stat sheets, you can start measuring things like possession and you go on the legal website and you can find possession data right there on the legal website. And you can do the same with, with the SHL. They, they track things like Corsi and et cetera, et cetera. So 
th those are, are, are still huge pieces of the puzzle in terms of contextualizing players relative to their, their teammates, relative to their league, et cetera, et cetera. But it's much more difficult to trust any of the public sphere data in North America because the NCAA, the AHL, and the CHL don't release time on ice data. So it, you, it, it's, it's difficult to take things a step further than, than raw sort of points per game or the sort of points relative to your age, that kind of a thing. It's, it's difficult to, find, to take those steps forward unless you're doing manual tracking on a consistent basis just because they, they still don't have data in terms of time on ice. So it, it, it's complicated. And then the other big problem especially in junior hockey in Canada is that people who, who do this casually, I don't think do a good enough job recognizing how different team a is from team B. So you can look at the CHL stats page on elite prospects on any given day, and you can sort it for points per game by under 20 players in the CHL. And it will give you a terrible picture of which players are better than which players. And I think people can fall into that trap because Player X, who had 0.75 points per game uh, on the London Knights, and player B, who had 0.75 points per game on the Flint Firebirds, are in completely different situations in terms of the talent that they're surrounded with, the schedule that they play. All of those things need to be a part of your critical thinking in terms of evaluating these kids. So there is a massive gap in all three Canadian junior leagues between the good teams and the teams that are just terrible on an annual basis. And you have to have a good understanding of that. And then you also have to have a good understanding of who they're playing with because a kid can put up 0.75 points per game playing on the fourth line. And he can also put up those numbers playing with Connor McMichael or playing with you name the superstar in junior hockey. So it's, 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 it, you still have to have an intimate understanding of who they're playing with who they're being coached by, how, how much time they're being played in, in, in a game, whether they're on the power play, whether they're doing all of their producing at even strength. Those are things that matter a lot to me. And certainly data helps with that in terms of just isolating sort of even strength metrics and, and sort of taking the special teams out of it a bit. But you still need to be able to sort of keep track of, of where these players are at on their teams, which is uh, there's a little more balance at the pro level the, even in, I mean, in Russia, there's a big gap in the KHL, but in, in, in Liga and in Sweden, the middle of the pack is, is normally pretty tight. There's more parity, a lot like there is in the NHL. In the NHL, it's easy to measure data team to team because all of the teams are relatively close, but that just doesn't exist in the CHL at all. While we're on the topic of analytics, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on uh, William Eklund and, and whether he's overperforming uh, like his expected goals totals or uh, if his good points totals are just a result of playing time or what. I, I haven't had much time to look into him. He certainly had a nice run of luck to start the year. If you pulled up their SHL page in terms of stats and looked at his PDO, et cetera, et cetera, he, he was getting luck. He was getting favorable results at the start of the year. But there's no question he has exceeded expectations and has proven that he's one of the 10, 15 best prospects in this draft at this point. He's been outstanding. That line with Alexander Holtz has been a ton of fun to watch. They're creating when they're on the ice. And even if his production does sort of settle down a little bit and he doesn't keep up at the pace that he's been playing on through the first sort of third half of the season here, I still think he's going to get to the end of the year and have had a darn good season and have had one of the better seasons in terms of a, a, an 18 year old at the professional level in Sweden in the last few years. So um, that on it, on its own 
merits will, will warrant a high pick. And, and then you actually watch him play and study him stylistically in terms of his tools and the way that he plays. And you're, you're equally impressed with that. He's just a kid who does everything well. So I, I think Eklund's a, a really, really impressive player. And I don't think he's likely to be a star player per se in the NHL. Like he's not going to be a number one or a number two player on a Stanley cup winning team. But I think he can be that kind of second tier player, the kind of player who eventually gets paid five, six million dollars a year instead of ten million dollars a year. So I think that's the kind of projection that I have for William at this point. So, uh, you know, another player that I think is we're getting a lot of recognition nowadays with the highlight reel plays that he's been making is Ken Johnson. Uh, at the next level, do you so, do you see him at the middle of the ice or do you think that he could be more effective as a winger? That's a million dollar question. It was the same question we asked with Elias Pettersson, who's probably his closest comparable in terms of the last few years. They're, they both got that kind of skinny look to them, a wiry frame, and then they're just more creative than everyone else on the ice. And in Elias, the question was always, is he so talented that he's going to be able to stay skinny? Because we all knew that he wasn't likely to add weight easily. And that's still true today. Uh, or was he going to sort of struggle because of his size and because he couldn't hold his own physically and that kind of a thing. And in Elias's case, the result has clearly been that he's just too talented. So that's, that's the debate with, with a player like, um, like Kent. So it, it, I don't know what the answer is or where I've fully settled on Kent. I, I think I'm higher on him than most at this point. He's kind of been in that top three, top four, top five conversation for me all year. I think he's probably my, still my number one ranked forward today. Certainly the five point game is in, in the debut was a little easy to get excited about and get carried away. And he's come back down to earth a little bit, but he's still having an excellent season. His hands in terms of going side to side are elite and he plays fast, faster than Elias does for sure. Elias has never really dominated with speed. So um, it, it, it's an interesting conversation. He obviously doesn't shoot the puck anywhere near the way that Elias shoots the puck. I think Elias has one of the, I don't know, three or four best one-timers in the league. Um, so th they're, they're different players in that way, but I still think that you, you might end up in the same place with a player like Kent, which is someday he, he's going to, if, if he slips, let's say he gets taken 10th, 11th, 12th overall in this draft. I think he's the kind of kid where just like Elias slipping a little bit, you could go back and five years from now and say that kid's the, the most talented forward in the draft and we need to do a better job of identifying those players. So we'll see where it, where he ends up, but the talent in terms of the skill set, the ability to play with speed, the ability to sort of beat defenders one-on-one -on -one, and then the ability to play off the puck. Even I think that's an underrated quality in his game. All of those things are really excited. He's, he's a hell of a player and he's t a ton of fun to watch. I wanted to ask you about um, Simon Edvinson, who obviously has a really high ceiling. Um, but obviously the concern with him is decision-making sometimes second guessing, especially in the neutral zone. I wanted to ask as a scout, are those tweaks that are minor enough that would still keep him, I guess, in your spot, a six or at least a general top 10? Or do you think, obviously, he's only played a couple games in the SHL. Do you think if that continues over the course of this season, he'll fall out of the top 10? Yeah, Simon's a tricky player to to evaluate. I, I had him ranked second on my board when I did a preseason preseason ranking. And I got a couple of texts from people saying, whoa, 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 uh, rein it back in a little bit. Um, but he's one of those players where you can watch him and easily fall in love with him because he's long, but he's got 
extreme talent for a player who's six foot four and in terms of his ability to actually hang on to the puck and to make things happen offensively. And he's completely fearless. You see it in the SHL too. He'll hang on to the puck against professionals. He'll take the puck into the corner. He'll beat you one-on-one. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Rasmus Dahlin at that age where Rasmus would, he, he didn't care. He, he just would go out and try to make his play. Right. So Simon's a little bit like that, but the problem with Simon is that he then doesn't have a a really dangerous shot. So he's not able to finish off a lot of those plays. And then sometimes it looks like he's just hanging onto the puck because he doesn't know what his next play is. And then suddenly he's in trouble because he's hung onto it a little bit too long, or he's made the wrong decision. And that kind of thing always, always seems to enter the conversation with him. So in terms of the raw skills, the, the ability to handle the puck and stick handle as a six foot four defenseman, uh, the, his aggression and confidence and all of those things are there. He defends well, although it, it, there's some warts there as well, but He's a very raw kid, so I, I think his ceiling is quite high, but his floor is probably lower than the other top defensemen in this draft, even a player like Brant Clark, who I think has a high floor, high ceiling projection as well, so uh, or low floor, high ceiling projection. So it's Simon's a very tricky player to evaluate, and I suspect that just because he's tricky, that he'll probably be a, a, a kid who doesn't go in the top 10 because teams will just want to trust themselves with a player who's a little safer. I think uh, in this this is a year with a lot of guys like that where there's um, a lot of talk of ceilings and floors. And I was curious how you think um, the pandemic will play into that. And if you think we'll see more teams selecting guys like Owen Power that are more of a sure thing and we'll see less people taking chances this year, especially if we don't get to see uh, the CHL back in action. Yeah, that's the X factor. It's how many, not only can the WHL and the OHL get going again, but how many games do they ultimately get in? Because if if they only get 20 games in, even that is going to make this a very, very difficult group to, to sort of project. And we all thought the 2020 draft when it got canceled was going to be the tougher draft, but it's absolutely emerged as 2021 just because the pandemic has spilled on longer the vaccine still isn't available. And and these seasons have been disrupted more than last season's was, even though last season ended in a complete cancellation. So uh, it's not easy though. Some of those OHL kids and the WHL kids who haven't been back playing the the Mason McTavishes, um, those kinds of players, I I just, I'm antsy to see them at this point. And I'm, I'm worried. Like a lot of people are worried that I'm going to make a mistake on some of those kids because I haven't seen them enough or, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know what the solution is. I, I don't know what the end game is with this draft. I, I even had a, a, a close friend of mine text me the other day and say, would this be the year to, to just push the back, the draft back altogether and to do a sort of 19 year old draft in 2022, where all of these kids have been playing for even longer. And that's not something that's ever going to happen. It's not practical. The NHL makes too much money off of the NHL draft. Uh, teams want to get these kids into their systems early, but this is the kind of draft year where if they were ever going to move back and have that 19 year old draft, which gets discussed kind of intermittently every 10 years, it seems this would be the year to do it because it gives these, the kids in this draft and in the next draft, just more time to prove themselves and to get into games and all of that. So it, it's a bit of a shit show, honestly. This draft is going to be very difficult to to sort of study and project, especially for the OHL and the WHL kids. Yeah, I think with the, the OHL and the WHL kids, it, it's sort of a rough go with them at the moment because they can't really show themselves off. But, you know, in terms of, you know, some players having a, a better situation at the moment would be, 
you know, people, players playing in the USHL right now. And, you know, one player that comes to mind right away is Mackie Samoskevich, and he's looked incredible this year. And, you know, with the, with the increased, I guess, uh, role with uh, Brendan Brisson gone and, you know, uh, Sean Farrell still there, but uh, can you talk about like his, uh, his improvement and, you know, what you've seen from him this year? Yeah, he's a fascinating player and a player I'm going to tell a story on at, at some point throughout all of this. Um, but he's, he's a, a really interesting kid, really interesting uh, story. Uh, uh, and in terms of talent, it's all there. Him and Matthew Coronado have been lights yeah. out yeah. for that team. And uh, that team's a, a bit of a cheat code. I think last mm-hmm. year's Chicago Steel team, which unfortunately didn't get to win the USHL, USHL title, was probably the greatest USHL team that's ever been assembled. Um, they were on a ridiculous winning streak when the season got canceled, they were going to run through the playoffs and, and win the championship. So I know they were all heartbroken by that, but Mackie has taken advantage of the new opportunity with, with the kids that you, that you mentioned who are off to college. And, um, all of that has, has sort of built this perfect storm for him where now he he's the veteran guy and he gets to sort of really own it, but he, in, instead of owning it in his post draft year, he gets to own it in his draft year. So he, he's a slick sort of playmaking uh, line driving kind of player. I'm not sure how much uh, that game is going to translate at the next level, whether he's so talented that he can continue to be that guy or whether he's going to end up as kind of those, one of those weird tweeners where you can't really play him in a fourth line role, at least not with the way that NHL coaches currently assemble their teams. And is he talented enough to be a first line guy or, a, or even a second line guy and that kind of a thing. But the talent at this age is there. And that's the kind of gamble that you take in this sort of mid to late first round, early second round for me. So I think he fits into that kind of a range in this draft. I'm not sure he'll be a top 15 guy for me by the end of the year, but there's no question. He's been a ton of fun to watch. He had an amazing first game for that Chicago steel team. It was a 10, seven game that they actually lost. I think he had five points and he was yeah, still like a barn burner, <laughs> which means he was literally on the ice for 10 goals. Yeah. Um, but it, he, he's a, he's a really, really sort of crafty, intelligent, slick player with the puck on his stick. And, that's the way that the game is trending. So he, he fits right into the sort of first round conversation in this draft as a result. Um, I had another Q question for you. And I wanted to ask about Isaac Beliveau, who dropped 19 spots when you released these ones. Um, his stats last year with Ramuski were super impressive, but a lot of the people are attributing that to playing with Lafreniere. And I wanted to know um, how much more do you expect him to fall if he sort of can't match those point totals? And do you think that the majority of his point totals last year were just because of Lafreniere? Or do you think he's good enough on his own to, to generate some production? Well, I think there's a little bit of truth to both. Anytime you put up 50 points in your pre-draft season, you're a hell of a prospect. I don't care what team you're on, especially if you're a defenseman. So uh, he was one of the leading scorers in that league in terms of defensemen. He was right up there with William Villeneuve and Jeremy Poirier and kids who who obviously were, were picked pretty highly, although Villeneuve slipped a little bit to the leaps. But uh, in Poirier's case, he went quite high. Um, but it's, I don't know, He the reason he fell is in part just because he's looked a little bit different this year. And, and some of that is attributed to that team. Certainly he benefited from playing on a Ramuski team that had contending aspirations. They wanted to win a championship. So 
that was a, a part of what uh, sort of led to his success last year for sure. And that's been illustrated this season when he hasn't been able to play at that same level and produce at that same level on a team that's now in a different phase in terms of where they're at as an organization. Um, so all of that's at play. I still think he is a legitimate prospect. I like the way that he operates on the ice in terms of making plays with the puck. He's not the most, a little bit like Bill Nove, he's not the most careful defender and he's not the best skater in the world. And sometimes that can be completely prohibitive in terms of getting to the NHL. So you have to consider that when you're evaluating him. And that's part of the reason I slipped on him a little bit, but I think the the conversation about him, that it was all on his team and that he's not a, still a, a good prospect got a little bit carried away. He, he's not a great prospect, but I do think there are a lot of qualities that he has. I still think he might be able to run a second power play at the NHL level he's being used a little bit differently this year, which is influencing his production, which I would say is, is also true of William Villeneuve, who's now instead of playing with Jeremy Poirier and on the top power play unit is playing more of a shutdown role under a new head coach in St. John's so that Charlie day rush who went undrafted last year could get a new opportunity. So there's, there's a lot at play with those kids and, and you have to be careful in terms of saying definitively one thing or the other in terms of this kid sucks or this kid's not going to make it or he was only good because of his team. There's more to the conversation and I, I think that's true with him. In such a historic draft year, I think we would be remiss if we didn't dive a little bit into the effect um, that COVID is having. Uh, I'm curious, obviously you're primarily or entirely doing video. Uh, what's your process? Are you, are you doing shift by shift? Are you watching full games to try to get multiple views on multiple players? Uh, are you looking at clips or, or how are you doing? How are you operating? A little bit of both, a uh, little bit of both. If, if there are teams where there's five or six kids that I'm interested in watching, I'll just sit down and spend two hours and, and watch a full game where there's teams where I know I'm only interested in one kid, I'll just blaze through his shifts. And that makes the process a lot faster from my end. The scouting service that I use catalogs all of their shifts, which is great because it means I can watch five games of a kid in, in a couple of hours instead of one game. Right. So that part of the job is, is a blessing in terms of modern technology, especially with the leagues that ca- that sort of keep time on ice because then it allows you to catalog their shifts in that kind of a way. Um, so it's, it's been a very different process in a normal year. I'm a, if in a five day work week, I'm normally in an OHL rink twice a week, uh, sometimes once a week, depending on the, depending on the week, but, uh, try to get out to Mississauga often, try to get out to Oshawa often, try to go North to Barrie and Peterborough and go South to Guelph. And I'm in Hamilton often, that kind of a thing. So being in Toronto is good in terms of the OHL in particular. And then I spend a lot of the year in a typical year, especially in the last two, three years, on the road. I've, I have a dedicated travel budget at the athletic. I go to all of the major events. There are specific colleges that I like to get to because there are several colleges in the area. And if I go to Boston for a week, I can literally see four different uh, division one programs play. Um, so all of that is, has been, is gone. I mean, it's, it's just, it com- doesn't exist anymore. I had to cancel my trips to Plymouth for, for the under 18 worlds last year. I canceled a trip to Kelowna to the Memorial cup. Uh, I was going to the frozen four, which was going to be in Detroit last year. So all of those things are, are now gone and it's forced everybody, I think, to just sort of redo the way that they're doing their jobs. And for, for certain scouts, I think that's easy. People like me who, who do a lot of video work as is, for other scouts, it's, it's quite difficult. It, there is a major benefit to being in the rink. So 
I don't know. It's, it's been a tough year. I, that's why I'm so looking forward to the world juniors in Edmonton, I think, because it's, it's going to be my opportunity to literally be one of the only people in the building for two weeks and to just sit there every single day and just watch these kids play and study them again. And I'll be doing some storytelling as part of it again, but the real benefit of me going to Edmonton this year is just going to be able to, to see some live hockey again. So I'm really looking forward to that. And hopefully, I don't know, in the next week, uh, week or so, we get a, a clearer picture over what the actual tournament is going to look like and that everybody gets through their five day quarantines. But uh, it, it's, it's been a slow process to get back to the point where we can watch junior hockey again. So I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that sooner rather than later, we'll all, we'll all be able to get vaccinated and get back playing. And certainly uh, even on the, the, the sort of side of the organizations in terms of the financials, uh, I'm hopeful that everyone in junior hockey can get through this unscathed and that teams aren't impacted in serious ways financially and all of that. People are losing their jobs over this. So uh, I just want to get back and, and get back to normal. And I think everybody's in the same boat. I'm curious. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to ask, um, yeah, go ahead. what's the biggest hurdle in video scouting versus being there live in person? Not having the full sheet of the ice in front of you. Um, it, the, the big advantage to being in person is being able to understand where the play is going and how teammates are playing off of each other. I think on video, you can really isolate the skill sets better than you can in person because you can pause, you can go back and look at a player's footwork. You can go back and look at a player's sort of hands in tight. You can go back and look at their release and the way that they're sort of shaping their shots and all of that. You can do better on video than you can in person but you can't get an understanding for responsibilities, for tactics, for the, the sort of the way that the game is developing in terms of systems and, and the way that players are supporting the puck. You, you don't get that same sense on video because the whole sheet isn't in front of you and you're not able to really slow things down and watch the way that the play is developing. I think we get a huge advantage in the rink from it may it, it being in the rink makes it feel like everything is slower, right? It, it makes it feel when you're above, like things are way slower than they actually are on the ice. And that's an advantage for player evaluation because you can say that kid didn't make the right play there, or that kid uh, didn't see the right play there. And that's a little bit tougher on video when it, it's sort of th those kinds of things are out of your control by the camera operator in a way. So um, it's a bit of a mixed bag. The other benefit, obviously, to being at the rink, which every scout will tell you, is the benefit of talking to other people, uh, talking to other scouts, talking to coaches, talking to the players, standing face to face with the players in terms of getting to know them after a game and that kind of a thing. So that is, is also a, a big sort of thing that's been taken away. But on the flip side, there's also problems to that that I think scouts often uh, don't do a good enough job addressing when they're at a game, which is it's very easy when you're at a game to get distracted. It's very easy to spend five minutes talking to the person who's standing next to you or sitting next to you in the press box or whatever. And then suddenly you're not actually watching what's happening on the ice. Whereas when I'm sitting at home and my laptop's open, I have no choice, but to, to watch what's in front of me. So, uh, and I can pause when I want to get distracted. So uh, it, I don't know, there, there are benefits and drawbacks to both, I think. Well, Scott, thanks again for doing this. I have one more question before we let you go. And it's, sure. it's sort of about the world juniors. And, you know, I, I just wanted to know uh, what your expectations are for this tournament and, and maybe uh, one player in particular that you think could ultimately just improve their draft stock and, you know, improve their sort of uh, perspective in terms of uh, other viewers and how they look at them. 
Yeah, it's a really good question. My expectations in terms of outcomes for the tournament is probably that you're most likely, and I, I will probably shoot myself in the foot saying this because it's the World Juniors and I'm always surprised, but you're most likely looking at a Canada-USA uh Canada USA gold medal game. I, I went through, I mapped out the group play. I sort of predicted one to five and then did the crossover. And sometimes you, even when Canada and USA are the two best tournaments and the two best teams in the tournament, you don't get that game just because of how the structure works in terms of the crossover of games and they have to play each other in the semifinals and that kind of a thing. This year, if it plays out how I expect it will, you, you, they won't have to play each other in the semifinals, which will likely mean that they meet in the finals. Uh, it's a weaker age group for Russia. The 2001 age group for Russia is, is weaker than years past. When the 2002s were playing, you typically always see three or four players from the year below in Russia playing with, with the older age group. But when the 2002s were playing their international events last year, you were more likely to see a 2000 playing up with them than you were a 2001, which speaks a little bit to them just having a bit of a weaker tournament this year in terms of the talent level that the 2001s are for the Russians. And then the Swedes, I think they would have been closer to that conversation with USA and Canada had they not battled COVID with, with several players who were meant to be important pieces of the team. So that has just thinned them out a bit. I think the Swedes have the best defense in the tournament, better than Canada's, but their forwards after that top line with, um, with, with Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz, their, their forwards definitely really do thin out a little bit. So um, it, that's probably my expectation. I, th- I think you'll see a Sweden-Russia bronze medal game. The Finns don't have a great team this year. I think you'll see Sweden and Russia in the bronze medal game and, and Canada-USA in the final with Canada probably as the slight favorite, but Spencer Knight, man, that guy can steal a game whenever he damn pleases. So that Knight will be the X factor in a game like that. He's just the better goalie than any of the three goalies that Canada is bringing. So that's kind of my expectation on that side. And then in terms of players, I don't know. The, the two kids that I always seem to come back to are Jan Mishak and Emil Andre. I think those are two kids who were hurt by the fact that the U18 Worlds didn't happen. Yeah. People were going into the U18 Worlds and they were going to see all the top sort of 10 picks and all of the great players. And those guys were going to impress. But I think Mishak leading that Czech team and, and Andre playing a leading role on the back end for that Swedish team would have upped their draft stock a bit. So I think you could see that play out here too. Uh, Andre's probably going to be on the third pairing for Sweden, which means his opportunity may be a little bit limited just because their D is so strong, but Mishak is going to be the guy for the Czechs. And, and I expect he'll, he'll have a really good tournament in, in that kind of a role this year. So those are two players I would keep an eye out for. And then on Canada, I think Jacob Pelletier is the one who stands to most improve his draft stock. They've got a team obviously of, we all heard it yesterday. They, they chose 20 out of 25 of their kids or first round picks. And they're a very talented team. Pelletier is a kid who's flown under the radar. He missed last year's camp. I think he could have made last year's gold medal team Canada, but he missed last year's camp with a concussion that he suffered a couple of days before the tournament. And that just set him back. And then he was injured previously when he'd last played at U 18s midway through the tournament as well. So Pelletier is a kid now who they really like his line with Dylan Holloway and Alex Newhook. If they get favorable matchups, I think they're just going to feast on teams yeah. playing a little bit sort of in that third, fourth line role, if you can even call it that, considering how good Alex Newhook is. But um, I think those three kids will be a ton of fun to watch. And we all know who Alex Newhook and Dylan Holloway are. But I think Canada doesn't have the same sort of appreciation in terms of even in terms of diehard hockey fans of a player like Pelletier. So those three kids, Pelletier, Andre and Mishak, I think all three of them could make some waves and, and sort of improve their stock as prospects. 
Well, Scott, uh, thanks again for uh, taking the time to uh, you know chat with us and be the first guest on In the System. And uh, we hope you have a good time at Edmonton, and we hope for you know one hell of a tournament as well. Thanks so much. Yeah, no Scott. sweat, guys. Thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And welcome back, everyone. You know that was a really great talk with Scott. There, we got you know a little bit uh, in depth with how he looks at prospects, how he started, and you know a little bit of everything. We talked 2020 draft, we talked 2021, and you know the World Juniors as well. So, uh, guys, I just wanted to ask you guys what are your thoughts on uh, the interview, and you know some things that you guys uh, may have learned from Scott. I, I think how in depth his answers were. You know, there are a lot of people who would give you the cliche, and I think being able to go into detail for every single question, detail on the player, and even citing back to interviews he did with players, like he mentioned back in 2014 when he when he met Quentin Byfield and, and talking, you can tell how much he knows. And I think it's good for anyone who wants to learn for those listening and, and for us as well, who we have these questions, to hear thoughtful answers, to hear articulate answers of, of what he actually thinks and, and how the process is. And um, also hearing what it's like in the industry, how – um, he tries to not let other people influence his rankings and how sometimes even if there is a step away from the mainstream, someone might challenge it and how they all kind of work together. And I think the coolest part is knowing that when we watch the world juniors coming up, he's going to be one of the few people or media members, at least media uh, or on air talent aside, who will be there getting able to access that talking about how um, watching a game live, you can sort of analyze it more analytically. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. And I think more insight like that is needed because I think for people who might be a little bit newer, you don't really know how people are watching it. You know, you see tapes online of like a two second or a 10 second clip of, of someone and you think, Oh, that's cool. But you don't know the bigger picture. And I think he did an excellent job at sort of diving deep into that. It was a fascinating interview. I think it's uh, very evident why this, why Scott's uh, at the top and in, in his line of work. And uh, I think he gave great insight both into the players we talked about and also the work he does and the scouting industry as a whole. Yeah, and all honestly, I, I couldn't think of a more perfect guest to bring on for our first, uh, I guess, interview for In the System. And, you know, next episode, we have a bunch of great plans uh, set aside for you guys. We're going to do a full breakdown of the world juniors that are taking place in Edmonton. We'll talk Canada, U.S., Sweden, Finland, Germany, you know, all the countries. And, you know, Austria. we'll talk about Austria, you know, Marco Rossi. How could I forget? But you know, we'll talk about our favorites, uh, you know, players that we think will break out, you know, our players of the tournament, that type of thing. And that'll all be uh, there for you guys in the near future. So uh, once again, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of In the System. I'm your host, Rain Hernandez. And alongside me, as always, Patrick Talon and Kyle Watson. And we will see you guys next time. <laughs>